1: If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host.
0: This podcast is a Royfield brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Skylines is brought to you by
2: 100 Resilient Cities. Pioneered by the Rockefeller Foundation, 100 Resilient Cities is helping cities around the world become more resilient to the physical, social, and economic challenges of the 21st century. You can find out more at 100resilientcities.org. This is a
1: Manhattan-bound B-Express train. The next stop is... Street. Welcome to
2: Skylines, City Metric Podcast. I'm John.
3: And I'm Stephanie, and we're here for Hit the North Part 2, where we're gonna talk about football, leisure, northern cities, and employment and trains.
2: Yay, trains.
4: In Liverpool and Manchester there's a specific vibe. You disseminate information based around based around football. In the
5: fact that I think it's the largest student population in Europe, 60,000
3: students, that absolutely makes it a very dynamic city. So John, you are not interested in sport broadly and football specifically, am I right?
2: Yeah, I mean, but it's... I'm more sort of disinterested than uninterested. It's like, I don't get... I just don't get it. Like, I made a couple of attempts to try and be a normal child because it was like a sport in my school. But it's just like, I literally... You know, there's magic eye diagrams yeah. where, like, some people can just never see them. I'm like that with a football pitch. I just, I can't see what everyone else sees. And, like, I... I, I get, I'm I'm not proud of this. I kind of think I'm missing out. I remember how excited everyone got during the World Cup a couple of years ago, and it's like there is this whole realm of human pleasure that's completely cut off to me. So so yeah. So why are we doing this again?
3: Well, on on that slightly pessimistic note, we've brought someone in to talk about football and sport and either turn you onto it or chat about the culture around it so the missing part of your brain doesn't matter um, so we're joined by Neil Atkinson who's from the hugely successful Anfield rap
4: I, I feel like you've got the wrong person in Have I, you? I, I don't like football very much so I'm sort of broadly speaking with John in that you know I, I, I watch other football mainly to see how it impacts upon Liverpool I like Liverpool I like Liverpool football club football itself it's one of them. I'm actually reading a great book at the minute uh, by Daniel Gray. Uh, I think it's called Fifty Delights, and it's all oh, fifty re- fifty things to love about modern football. And and Dan makes a great a great claim for y- for your attention and time about things like seeing uh, seeing st- uh, stadia from uh, from trains and things like that as a true delight of, of football. Still, so he loves football and he loves all the things about football. Whereas I love I love Liverpool and uh, all the things about Liverpool winning. Uh, that's, that's, that's my <laughs> that, 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 that's, that's my MO uh, but I, I, I think this idea that people and I think that this is one of the things that football does that's a bit negative really is that it tends to sort of I, I mean all, I think most cultural activities do but it, it tends to make people who don't necessarily like it feel excluded and I think that that's a bit of a shame because there's no reason for anybody to feel excluded even if they don't like it and but because you know, if you, if you if you list anything that becomes a separate activity, then it has its own, it has its own jokes, its own reference points, its own things that therefore make you. There's a World Cup going on, and you're wondering why everyone's getting carried away, and no one actually takes the time to say, "John, the World Cup might not be for you, but actually, Division Two football might be with 500 people in the cold, in the wet. It could it could inform a bleak outlook that you could.
2: <laughs> you're really selling this here. Well, so. <laughs> it's the cold and the wet and.
3: Can we row you back a bit and yeah, ask about ask about Liverpool and football so you did you grow up a football fan?
4: Yeah, very much so. I like had my first game when I was five and, you know, it was me, me and Dad was from Anfield um, and, you know, so you, you go, my granddad still lives there and, and so, you know, walking into the stadium from there he'd rang the pitch announcer to get them to say something about me. Uh, at, at the very least I can remember on my seventh birthday I sort of might have a false memory of it when I was five and a half so I'm not quite sure on that one but it definitely happened when I was seven. And so, yeah, very much so and it's something which, you know, immediately hits and I do think that there's, I, I think, and I, I, so sort of to, to run Yourself back forwards on John's thing there. I think that there is something where, when you are the first time you see a pitch and at any pitch, I mean, this is any pitch, I mean, this is where I do end up sounding like a football romantic. But if you take me up a set of steps and then introduce a green space,
3: the moment when you walk out into yeah. that, yeah, and I, think, yeah. But I
4: can still remember that. I can remember that from when I'm younger, Anfield, and then when there's a break, when there's the when there's the summer, and then I didn't get to go to the first game of the season, I was on holiday, which was nice. Uh, but when I went recently, I was like, "Wow, there it is! This huge green thing that they're all going to run around on." And I think that that's something which is—it is adolescent, not even adolescent. It's—it's—you it's, know—it's—it's it's, it's a childlike. This is a wonderful, marvelous thing that they're going to run around on this, and people are going to watch. So I do like that, and I do think that that's something which people who really like football it does stay with them. And so what that means is that when you do, for instance, watch games on television, you get that—you get that feeling of that without necessarily having to be there.
3: I remember it really distinctly I went a couple of weeks ago and saw Accrington Stanley play West Ham which was a bizarre spectacle on so many levels but walking up and I'm not a big fan of the new West Ham stadium for a lot of reasons but walking up and just opening out into yeah. that big space it is, it's instinctual it's almost physical isn't it
4: yeah, it's a, rush. It's, yeah. A rush. it's a rush it's a rush of energy and anticipation for the thing that you're about to see And but also it's that like one of the things that again, you can, you can sound ridiculous and like you're trying to be some sort of Tim Pot Alan Bennett, but the, the smell of the grass <laughs> you very rarely you smell that much grass without it being interfered with other things. So, for instance, when you imagine yourself walking through a park, you can't really sell, smell turf, you can smell trees, you can smell plants, you can smell flowers. But when you actually there's nothing else, there's just grass here, and it's that. And I, you know, things like that I think are quite visceral sort of things that, that that evoke football in a way in which lots of other things don't.
2: Okay, so despite the fact I have never I I think I've watched two football games in my life and in both of them England went out of the World Cup so I realised I was I was actually harming the national (laughs) cause with my attention so I just stopped but despite that I would actually say that on some level I'm a West Ham supporter I don't care but I'm a West Ham supporter because of where I'm from because my dad and my granddad are West Ham supporters and when I was a kid walking around you could tell how West Ham was doing by the noises coming from the other houses so this idea of like it being a sort of geographical phenomenon, where in Liverpool is Anfield?
4: Uh, Anfield is oh, it's about uh, two, two, three miles uh, northeast out of the city centre. So you can walk it from the city. Uh, you wouldn't I've, have, have done it about sort of... 15, 20 times, but you 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 wouldn't necessarily choose to.
3: So can we talk about that kind of geography within cities? Because to me, this is so interesting because if you go to a derby match in Manchester, one of the things that the City fans will chant it. United supporters is fuck off back to Salford. Yeah. Like, Talk to me about that in Liverpool. What is the kind of geographical distribution? Well, no, there is. I
4: mean, you know, you can walk within within 400 yards of, of Anfield is Goodison. I, I actually, uh, someone uh, who comes and does one of our shows, So Sorry,
2: is uh, Goodison the Everton ground. Yes, is yeah. that, That's a very basic question. Yes. You're going to have to spell these things out for <laughs> Good, me.
4: Goodison is the Everton ground, and Goodison is within 400 yards. It's the other side of Stanley Park. And when I go to see Liverpool um, this season, I've been picked up by Philippa Afterwards, she was coming to do a show with us, and she parks in Goodison. So I just walk across from Anfield, and there it is. And literally, when I say park, she parks in the back of their their shop. That's where she was parking there. So it's the the Everton open that and take the money from the parking. So that's how close it is, and that's how it's, close Liverpool and Everton are.
2: That's thrown me a bit because I okay, I was in Liverpool a couple of weeks ago. Someone told me the best view of the city was to be had from um, Everton Park. Everton, yeah, Everton Yeah. Brau, yeah. Um, and this is an absolutely fantastic view from up there. But that was, you know, in walking distance to the north of the city. So yep. I assumed that Everton was up there somewhere. So, therefore, in my mind, I still division assumed Anfield must be to the south.
4: No, no, no. Everton, uh, Everton and Liverpool are very, very close indeed. So, Everton is, Liverpool is uh, actually sort of, Liverpool Football Club is, sort of, is is in Anfield. Anfield is right next to Everton, uh, as terms of sort of lines that you can draw through. But they're both in the same parliamentary constituency, for instance.
2: Because in, in London, they're reasonably widely geographically See, distributed, this is really aren't interesting they?
3: interesting yeah. to me. because... The North West, I think of those cities as football cities. I think of Manchester as a football city, Liverpool as a football city. London has football areas, in, yeah. in my mind. Why, why do you think there is that kind of difference in how people engage in it?
4: Because people, one of the, for instance, you know if Liverpool or Everton are playing at home. If you're going to go out in Liverpool, you've, you, you're impacted by that information. Literally, you're impacted by it with the flow of the traffic. You're impacted by it, by the decisions that are made. Even in terms, to a certain extent, I think it's a, it's a consideration of, for instance, when you are or aren't putting events on in a city like Liverpool, and even in a city like Manchester, which is bigger than Liverpool. Whereas London's got its own thing. London L- London simply exists completely separate to the, to the rhythms of, of its football teams. Its football teams just happen to be in London. So, for instance, a really good example of that is that you know Arsenal doesn't actually exist as a place. Arsenal isn't really a place it's, uh, it's a park you know it's, it's Holloway North London but the club's called Arsenal it's not got that link
2: it's because it was named after the Woolwich Arsenal where they were originally based which exactly. is where they built all the armaments so ex- yes. ex-
4: mm. exactly so it's not quite you know it, 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 it doesn't even in the name have a sense of sort of have a sense of geography and that's and I think in, in general London you're right it's got football areas and areas where you're for instance you know the first time you see East Ham West Ham you evoke sort of football fo- mm. football iconography for want of a better phrase but you don't get that uh, sort of with, with a lot Of the other London teams, because London London gets on with the business of being London. That's what it is. It's it's the capital of the country. It's got all you know. It's got it's got six, seven, eight million people. Whereas Liverpool, if fifty thousand people, fifty five thousand people, sixty thousand people come to Liverpool for a cultural event, well, if that was any other cultural event apart from football, it'd be on the front page of the local paper. Similarly with Manchester, you know, if you can get get eighty to one hundred thousand people moving around Manchester, that's a massive deal and so I think that that's and that's not to say that these are small cities because they're not but they have a centre of gravity and football becomes that centre of gravity and I think that's a you know that's a big deal and it, like on the most basic sense recently my, uh, my partner was asking me when, what to do for her birthday and when and her first three questions and she doesn't she, she, she likes football but she doesn't she doesn't love football but her first three questions were about Liverpool's fixtures If I say almost everybody's, I'm generalising, but it's how a lot of social circles work in Liverpool, that even if you're not going to these games, if they're away or whatever, you still need to have this piece of information. So, for instance, I'm not going to ask people to meet on my birthday at 7 o'clock because Liverpool are kicking off at half five.
3: Yes, yeah, it's going to rate. be impossible to yeah, get into. People, yeah,
4: yeah. People, people and also, what it does it means that we're not going to be able to go to that bar, that bar, that bar, or that bar at that stage, but we might be able to later on. And all this sort of thing is it's a live thing, whereas in London, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but in London, basically, just getting on with the business of everywhere, yes, it might be busy, but it might be, but it might be busy for a billion reasons, not just it's, for. Specific... It depends it's a function, where you are, it's a doesn't function it, of scale.
2: Yeah, because yeah, um, I, I live in North London. To get between my house and my in laws, one of the routes we use is not far from the Arsenal Stadium. We have to know if they're because yeah. it does interrupt the traffic but that's a relatively contained area it's a couple of square miles which in London that's not that much exactly whereas yeah and I think mean also the point you made about you know 50,000 people coming to Liverpool is a big increase in Liverpool's population that day well like a million people commute into London every day kind of thing so it just doesn't, yeah.
3: doesn't make so what, what about how that feeds back into the culture then because I feel like In London, you have these localised football cultures. I'm about to move to New Cross and it's kind of Millwall. You know, you have Millwall pubs and things like that, but it's nothing like the scale of there is music, there is fanzines, there is stuff going on back in Manchester where the kind of rhythm of the culture moves around football, like you say. Is that your experience in Liverpool yeah, as well? Yeah,
4: hugely, hugely. The Liverpool and Manchester, I think, are the two, I'd say, the two best examples. I think that the North East might, might, might make some noises about that. But I think in Liverpool and Manchester, there's a, the, there's a specific vibe. You, you, you disseminate information based around, again, based around football and based around football matches. So, for instance, the guy who runs uh, Africa OEA, which is the biggest free festival of African music in, in the world, I think, was well, certainly in Europe comes on our show and now he comes on our show to talk about Tottenham because he's a Tottenham supporter but when he originally came on he came on to talk about this because we were a decent way to speak to people both inside and outside of Liverpool who will be listening and and who will be culturally active. And I think that one of the things that Liverpool and Manchester does, and I'm I'm thinking more about Manchester United than Manchester City, but that could be me being unfair, but one of the things that Liverpool and Manchester... Sounds fine to me. One of the things that Liverpool and Manchester do really, really well...
2: I don't get that joke.
4: (laughs) One of the things that Liverpool and Manchester do really, really well, and Liverpool is... Link in sort of is is that there is, if you go to the match, that doesn't mean that you're just simply a football supporter, you've got another set of activities. So, for instance, there is, you know, I I sent you both a picture before this of of a Manchester United away end. And when you see a Manchester United away end, and one of the things that will be startling to an on football supporter is what you used to see when you see football crowds is lots of people wearing replica football shirts, and they were all wearing black. And one of the reasons for that is because there's a link in terms of in Liverpool and in Manchester. And it's been historical. I mean, when you look back at the the infamous panorama footage of the early 60s of the cops swaying and singing, they're all wearing suits. They've all either come from a job or they're going to go out that night. And one of the things that's there in in sort of in the post-casual culture of the late 70s, early 80s, and keeps moving forward, is the idea that you're going to go to the game, but you're going to go out after. That night doesn't stop when the final whistle goes, we're not all getting in our cars and going back to where we live. That this is this, this this event here in the middle is in the middle of the day. So you might have started to meet your friends at eleven, you might end up leaving them at twelve o'clock, you might go to a gig, you might go to do something else. All this stuff begins to feed in and filter in. Um and that's I think that's something which as I say is it's probably surprises a lot of people who either I don't. I think it's not,
3: misunderstood, isn't it? People kinda go, yeah.
4: I think if you don't live in a football city and if you don't live in, and I think, again, I think it's a northern, I think it's more of a northern thing, but I wouldn't necessarily completely generalise. But that's, it is sort of this idea that, well, yeah, this is, we're doing this and then we're going here and then we're going here and might go out for tea, we might go somewhere nice. So you need to therefore not necessarily, you don't, so you don't wear a football kit, you know, you just, you just, you just look ridiculous. <laughs>
3: Service
1: to, by Victoria, the
3: next stop the to talk more about that cultural aspect of the North, I am joined by the North's Culture Czar. He's a BBC6 music radio presenter who's written multiple books about being in the North, and most importantly, he's a New Statesman contributor. It's down the line, he's walking through Windy Jarrow, but here we are with Stuart McConey. about you're recreating the whole route of the Jarrow Marches? Yeah,
5: yeah, yeah, basically on Wednesday October 5th um, 1936 they set out from church in Jarrow. They arrived in London uh, in on Halloween um, I'm going to do that exactly day by day as they did it, staying in the places they stayed every night So that's, I won't go through them all but it begins something like Chester Street, Ferry Hill Darlington, Ripon. Uh, I think I get my first rest day after Harrogate in about seven days time just using the, 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 the framework of their walk and what they did to sort of, sort of celebrate what they did but also to look at what Britain's like two years on, because I think there's quite a few similarities without wishing to Kind of, you know, you know, without wishing to find stuff, will not exist. I think there are some similarities in 1936. And then a Tory government had just been re-elected with an increased majority in thirty six. But there was this idea of a real gap between the North and the South, certainly metropolitan Britain and the North. Interesting. And I went to the Jarrow Funday, <laughs> the 18th anniversary Jarrow Funday, um, which I just wrote a little blog, I don't know if anyone's going to use it, I just a little piece from online about it, um, because I said, you know, the irony of this is not lost on anyone, of course. Relive those heady days of rickets and the means test on the Bounty Council, you know, that's what I'm, that's what I'm doing... <laughs>
3: <laughs> so what, yeah, you mentioned there that kind of divide between the north and the metropolitan yeah. south, and I think that is—I mean, that's you know statistically we know that's kind of stronger than ever. And um, we were talking earlier in the podcast about one in three graduates now moves to London. I mean, there's an incredible brain drain going on. What's Gosh. been your sort of sense of that revisiting um, politics and revisiting a bit of the history of the north? What baffles me
5: is unless London's infrastructure. In terms of in terms of housing, I mean social housing is a thing of the past almost, isn't it? I mean how will I always wonder how London will simply house its nurses and primary skill teams and stuff like that. I mean, that's surely going to be somewhere down the line, It's not now a massive problem. But I do get a sense all our major cities are becoming, you know, without losing the character, quite quite dynamically alike, like London, I think. But I think once you step outside uh, of those big cities, you know, once you get away from the costas and, the, you know, and all that sort of stuff and the, and the hipster courts, like, I think you really notice that difference when you go through... Like I've done in the last few years in books, I mean, towns like the one I'm from, Wigan, and towns like the ones I'm going to on this for like Chester Street. I mean, you do notice another Britain, and I'm not quite sure if I could put exactly into word to what that is, but I just get the feeling that there is a there is a world going on that's perhaps not obsessed with the same things that. Uh, you know, metropolitan issues are. I mean, I don't know. You know, in terms of politics, I don't know if the same things exercise them. I mean, I I, I did think. To, I don't know if this is going a of tangent, but I did think that I detected a huge amount of metropolitan hauteur, if you like, uh, and and a kind of snobbery. It uh, after Brexit and certainly had that a high-handed metropolitan viewpoint that I think some people your Rochdales and your Oldens do feel you know I think they do feel that to a certain extent they're being left behind and then when they say you can't get a job because the local food processing factory only takes up then they're a racist
3: and, and
5: I, do, I, I, I can I can share a little bit I can it's not sure I can sit like with some of that anger really of saying I, I'm not a racist and but you, you know you can absolutely keep telling me that out it's just a natural assumption Your London or metropolitan journalist is going to come and file. I think file some piece of wither Britain today. You know, I've been to to safari. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. There's going to be this. I've been to talk. To these savages of Jarrow about, you know, how they are so, so out to touch with that. But, you know, that, that's because I've read quite a few of those pieces, those we go up north to find out who voted these, you know, as if they're these things, as if, if you no know, one in their right mind would have done that. It's like, it's like my, because you know, the sort of right scum kind of thing, I guess, with, bandied about by the Carbonistas. There's still a lot of, if you go to Sedgefield, where I'm going tonight, they quite like Tony Blair because yeah. they're less bothered about the Iraq war than, than they are about than they are about jobs and houses yeah. and sure staff yeah,
3: and minimum yeah, yeah. wage. And why why shouldn't they be? Yeah, the you things know. that directly affect your life versus... Exactly, yeah. yeah. Is the feeling different in Manchester? Is it notably, kind of, as you, you cross that boundary, you say, you know, you get out yeah. of Manchester and it feels like a different Britain. What's, what's kind of a situation in Manchester? Manchester's, Manchester's always
5: unique, I think. It has this unique temperament in history. Uh, I think the fact that, I think it's the largest student population in Europe, 60,000 students that absolutely affects the city, makes it a very dynamic city, makes it a very open kind of city, I think, I mean, I would, when the BBC were moving to Salford, a few people at the BBC, a few, a few uh, people of different ethnic backgrounds that I knew in, in London, were, were saying some some, some genuine think, trepidation, are we going to encounter much in the way of racism, and I said no, I said, no more than you would anywhere else, and I I said, I think I can't really vote for Blackburn or Wigan, Mike Towns, you might. They might be talking to each I said, but I do things in places like Manchester and Liverpool, no, because they're they are. We don't want it to romanticize them. Always oh, been rich cultural mixes, you know, diverse and that sort of thing. And I think Manchester, Manchester's got this Manchester's got this unusual history because it, you know, with some justification, again, claims have invented everything, from feminism to communism to vegetarianism to the computer, to the, you know, industrial Britain's form, you know, the technological revolution's there. they split the act though. there. So with some justification, Manchester's the first modern city in the world. So, and, and boy, does it know that. Though, as, uh, as you know, it's not going to meet slang star yet, and that rankles so much with it, because Liverpool has. And, uh, and, but it is, it is, it's always been unique because it, you know, it pulls off this incredible bit of civic and industrial chutzpah in the 19th century when it steals the sea from under the nose of Liverpool by building the Manchester Ship Canal and steals all Liverpool's trade and brings it inland. So it's got this, it's always had this kind of nonconformist dynamic. Pretty Frankel of play No, it's the Liverpool gentleman and the Manchester man. Liverpool was a much more aristocratic almost kind of city. Liverpool, um, Liverpool had money in shipping, and the ship owners, by and large, were these very, were, these were gentlemen. You know, they were they had they were they was landed gentry. Manchester's money was made in dirty stuff like cotton and coal, and its and its owners were much more like the people in brass they were sons have told themselves you'd got lucky and they, they, they had no words and graces. and they were seen as dirty fingernailed money making hucksters compared to the rather rarefied aristocrats of Liverpool, I think Manchester's always had uh, a bit of that about it that it's a uh, it's, uh, it, 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 it believes its own press which is one of the most irritating things about Manchester, but you can't turn a corner in Manchester there's some bloody bit of civic art telling how great Manchester is and worrying. but you know, as city Go. maybe she's got some
3: justification for it can i talk to you as well about that recent history because you you mentioned media city obviously you yeah. work there now and it, it kind of yeah. feels like the industry's gone from cotton and to doing media radio mm. music it's very kind of digital oriented it's very young how have you seen the city change since you kind of installed six music there
5: i think it's- Change has been the most obvious shift of a of a shift that's going on since the bomb.
3: And again, that, we uh, should explain that for our international readers? Yeah, we
5: should explain. There was a bomb at the Arndale Centre in uh, 97. I think I think was 90, it? 90 mid the mid 90s. I wouldn't actually. I, I should know these things. I I'm an expert, but I don't. Uh, it's the mid 90s. There was a bomb at the Arndale Centre, which caused which which no, no one no was hurt, but there was a lot of uh, civic damage, structural damage. Uh, and, as was the case often in Belfast, that prompted a period of sort of civic renewal. Now some people see the modern Manchester dating from that point. Uh, it's neat, it's still quite work, but it's, it's kind of right, I think. Certainly the Manchester I knew as a teenager, the Manchester I would get the number 32 egg yolk GMPTE bus into uh, from Wigan to go to buy records and see gigs when I was 15. It's completely different. And I think if you listen to, say, the music of Joy Division, you hear the Manchester of the late 1970s, the desertedness. The streets were empty. There were a whole, whole, whole bits of the city you would never go to. Some of the ones, the very place where Media City is now was a bit of Manchester. No one in right mind would have gone to after dark unless to avail themselves of various, you know, illicit places. Um, so it was, it was, it, 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 and I think there's, there's the, the Manchester of Joy Division, you can hear that late seventies in the, you can hear the emptiness. It sounds like Hume at night, those deserted walkways in the sky, those sort of you know kiss stained escalators and lifts and stuff like that. You can kind of hear that. There was a city that hadn't changed that much since the war, really, and I think you know you, you very much hear that in in the Smiths. I bought very much in Joy Division, and then something kind of changes. Something kind of changes. Maybe it's the bomb, although that's a bit like, but it goes summer kind of period of, I don't know what I call skinny latification you know, where you suddenly can't, from the pond, from the being of, you, know, you, you couldn't get a decent cup of coffee, imagine in 1982 and then suddenly you can't move for places where you can get a decent cup of coffee. And, and I think the bomb was a big part of that. I don't know if I had done it entirely that. I'm not sufficiently expert in economic matters to know whether there were other economic forces going on at work, particularly <laughs> the European Union, you know, that were putting money into Manchester. But I think that, that, that certainly, the, the bomb did have an effect, and I think it's a neat starting point to say that the modern Manchester sort of begins there, I think. And also Media City, uh, that's sort of been the most obvious, recent think, recent, uh, recent movement, and, and I think. The, the reaction that got initially, the hostility and suspicion and resentment that got from, uh, from from you know, from some London media people, I think just shows what a monumental amount of snobbery there is. You know, I read, Giles Corrin wrote a piece that I've referred to many times, a piece that talks about how it's kind of intolerable, he had to leave his wife's family for an evening. To go to promote promoted new book. That was ridiculous. Who thought, you know, thought of that system? It was a ridiculous system, you know what I mean? Which prompted me to say that if every penny spent on building Media City had simply been spent to screw up Giles' car in the day, that it was money well spent, but, uh, <laughs> but But that's just me. But there was an awful lot of that, an awful lot of sorts of is trying to dress itself as it's common sense. Well, everyone knows that Orc stops in London, so they should have just left it here. You know, and, and that, that, that sort of thing that's amused people who've been up for, them for a while, you know, TV, evenings of TV devoted to route master buses and. Uh you know, the closing of BBC TV Centre, which, frankly, people in song and Levenson couldn't get a monkey's back, you know, but, but they, they've been watching Granada Television, they've been watching Tony Wilson all their lives. Well,
3: exactly, that's what I was I was just going to say, if you don't think Manchester's got a um, media, recent yeah, media exactly. history, then what have you been spending your time on? Because well, After Dark, For the Sound of Midnight, Granada, like...
5: And when Peter Salmon, the be much missed former director of he not, who's now gone, he, he got me involved in a couple of the sort of early, you know, welcome, welcome to Manchester, people in London, you know. Sort of smoothing their passage into which again amused me a bit because I'd seen to call when when has got to London, it was get on your back mate. I don't recall any, I don't recall anyone ever meeting me when I went to work at the NME, you know at uh Houston Station with a with a bump with a goodie bag full of helpful in <laughs> But that's and jo- I'm, I'm joking of course in my sort of chippy way. Right? Um, but, um, <laughs> but no, never. Um, but um, but I did think that um, but I did say to him, one thing you'll find Peter he said, We've done some research and like loads of people don't watch the BBC unless the BBC they don't get this news from the B B C And I said, You've got to remember Peter Well of course Peter would know, he grew up in Burnley. I said, Got to remember Granada we had, a, we had the best, you know, regional TV franchise in the world. We had world across you know, world in action and all those great music pros, Tony Wilson, Coronation Street. And you know, I was television for me as a kid wasn't wasn't the BBC, which was actually stayed in the loop, kinda of remote. It was Granada. So that you know, it's, it's always had the guardian, you know. It's always had this fantastic this strong media presence And character. Um, and, and, uh, and I think people with Lucy sometimes forget that. They sort of we just sort of they regard themselves as sort of to the man of born in terms of being everyone's first choice for media, but Manchester's got a rich, independent media history.
3: Do you find, since Media City's been installed by the city, does feel different?
5: Yeah, I think it does. I think it does, but as I say, I think it's part of an ongoing wave of difference, that's been, uh, and I can understand why, to a certain extent, Liverpool and Birmingham kind of grumble about it a bit, because it's always Manchester, you know. I mean, got a perfectly brilliant system of BBC set up in the mailbox, which they don't just seem to have turned their back on, which actually, like, God knows, what I don't understand. But, you know, but so Manchester, Manchester all seems to win, out. you? can kind of understand. <laughs> you can go why the cities sometimes roll their eyes and go, not Manchester again, because from football to music, you know, it does seem to be, it does seem to, I was going to say punch above its weight, but then again its weight is considerable, I suppose. It's arguably written second city. Yeah, yeah.
3: So what, I mean, obviously big, too nebulous question, but we've talked about the past and we've talked about the present. So what What do you think would be a kind of good future for Manchester and maybe in kind, of, kind of spread some of that around the north a bit? Yeah. Well, people talk about this northern powerhouse thing. And I get asked a lot. I do some evenings with
5: where I read from my books and stuff. And people have started to ask me about the northern powerhouse. And I have to say, I don't. I don't know what, I don't know what to say about that. To a certain extent, I think people automatically, because it, because it was seen as the brainchild of George Osborne, hey, remember him, um, because it was seen as George Osborne's brainchild, people have automatically taken a dislike to it because they see Osborne's part and you know, discredited at old, uh, regime. But I don't know. Some people who I know, like Helen Page The Guardian's Northern editor who is you know, not, not a fool, thinks it's a great idea and, and you know he's very behind it and I do know that from my own point of view I don't know quite what it means I don't know quite what that means uh, that Northern Paradise. so it's difficult from that point of view for me to say but I do know that if what if one of the things Osborne meant I think was the fact that it's ludicrous that I can get from Manchester to London in two hours and it takes me almost the same time to get from Manchester to Wakefield which is, you know, a, a big town on the other side of the Pennine. And I do think that if it's about increasing those transport links so you get a kind of connected hub of stuff that I wouldn't have a problem with that. It's not going to mean the cities lose their individuality. Leeds and Manchester are always going to hate each other. Liverpool and Manchester are always going to hate each other. I want to say hate each other. I mean in a good way. I don't mean hatred. I don't mean a kind of corrosive hatred. I mean rivalry. You know, the rivalry that comes from sport and music and football. But I think in some ways it's the grit in the oyster that makes the pearl. You know, a certain amount of that kind. Rivalry in a turbine for cultural change and cultural achievement. I think so. So that's you know I, I think both cities will always maintain a, a massive character of their own, but they perhaps do seem Manchester becoming at the heart of a sort of I think what the geology ge- geographical people call it, is a megalopolis. You know, a kind of it's a, a population centre and a cultural centre and an industrial centre, well, an industrial economic centre, to sort of rival London. I mean, if we can pull it off. <laughs> if we, we can pull it up, yeah.
2: How does football affect the relationship between Liverpool and Manchester who, which are you know two of the, the most important cities in the north and they're actually really close together? Yeah, really
4: close. Uh, negatively really and I think it's a little bit of a shame because Liverpool and Manchester have more in common. I, I think the similarities aspect is slightly overblown. Certainly culturally, I think it's slightly overblown. I think, again, it's a cheap sort of generalisation and point. But if you look, for instance, Liverpool's music sort of looks out at the Atlantic, whereas Manchester's music turns back in towards the rest of England and Europe, just as, a, as an example of this. But there's lots and lots in common. And I think, it, I think it has grown to have a little bit of a negative impact. It doesn't have to. Uh, you know, you don't have to necessarily view, view Manchester as different and alien, firstly, because it isn't. But I think it has sort of... And it, as I say, we work with a lot, we work quite closely with with a couple of people who contribute to, to Manchester sort of football media. We get on very very well, and I know one of them likes to spend a lot of time in Liverpool uh, because he likes Liverpool, frankly. But what that means is that it, it often leads to people sort of just simply writing off the idea that that there can be that sort of close link. Hmm. And I think that that. Yeah, uh, the example I, I used before when I was speaking to speaking to Steph elsewhere was, was I, I don't understand why no one in Liverpool is seemingly pushing for there to be a better, a much better transport link between Liverpool City Centre and Media City. But it's almost as though that would feel as though it tarnished something. So at the minute, it takes you somewhere between 75 minutes and 90 minutes to get from Liverpool City Centre. That's the City Centre to Media City. So if you live anywhere else in Liverpool other than the City Centre, you've got to get to the City Centre. Sorry, we, we should
2: say Media City is kind of a new business area in, in yeah, it's, Manchester. it's Salford. where they
4: moved the yeah, BBC up there. Yeah. Uh, so it's Salford, Salford's closer to Liverpool than, than many other parts of Manchester. And you can, if you've got a completely clear run, you could drive it in 30, 40 minutes.
3: You never have a completely clear run. you never have so, <laughs> what,
4: so what, they, but what no one you know for all the talk of for instance HS3 and things like that around around Liverpool Manchester she- Sheffield hall making it quicker to get from Liverpool city centre to Manchester city centre isn't the problem but if you could make it quicker to get from Liverpool to media city then what you'd have is lots of the people who currently work in media city it would actually open up the idea that they could live in Liverpool it's quite cheap to live in Liverpool, and it's a very nice place to live, Liverpool City Centre, that's what, it's where I live, and you know, you've got loads and loads of amenities and things that you'd want, all within walking distance, and you can get away with paying you know, a sort, of, sort of 500, 600 quid a month in terms of rent mm-hmm. for the City Centre flat. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's uh, but you, that's, what you can, that's what you can do. And, uh, but at the minute, that's not an option because what you have to do, if you want to do it on public transport, is go from Liverpool City Centre, go to Manchester Piccadilly, change, get a tram, come back out and go from yeah. there. And it's a complete it's ludicrous... But no one, as I say, I've not seen anything mooted now...
2: I, I, well, firstly, I should spell out for the listeners that you missed a really magnificent look on Stephanie's face when uh, we were talking about how high rents in Liverpool were.
3: I, ju- I just went to rent a flat and was asked by the estate agent to make an offer in terms of monthly rents. So oh,
2: I'm... God. <laughs> so we, should, we should do a follow-up on, on your experience. We should how do happened? a follow-up. Yeah. I have a flat now for yeah, listeners yeah. who are following my housing um, crisis. <laughs> but, no, but going back to, to transport when I was in Liverpool, I met the guy who runs uh, Joe Anderson's office. Um, which was very exciting, it turns out he reads city metric, which is always nice. I uh, said, Oh, I love city metric, bit london centric, yeah, fair enough. We were talking about uh, I asked him how he felt about the idea that Manchester was kind of increasingly being treated as the capital of the north for a better way of putting it, and like you know if if we ever did win the argument for moving the actual capital out of London, I think it would go to manchester there 's not really anywhere else it 's going that, that is a plausible candidate. I said yeah, how does that, how does that feel as a scouser he 's like i 'd be happy with that." I would be much happier with the capital much yeah. nearer, and um, you know, I was I was actually surprised by that because you hear so much about the rivalries. No,
0: people, but
4: people would be happy with that, and I think that you know, there's the, the there is that sort of tension between Liverpool and Manchester, and it's ongoing. But I think in general, Liverpool's broadly speaking aware of the fact that it, well, it's part of the West. I don't think Liverpool, I'm, again, I'm generalising, but I don't think Liverpool sort of sees itself as part of the north. I think Liverpool sees itself as part of the West. You know, for instance, I don't think there's people in Liverpool who are, de- who are absolutely desperate to make common ground with Doncaster but you can see how,
3: anyone desperate to make coming ground in Doncaster?
4: Well, on uh, but, you, but you, can see how, you can see how Liverpool could be, become sort of, you know, can see how... how what, what happens in Liverpool and what happens in Manchester have a knock-on effect to one another and, 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 you know, literally have done for hundreds of years. You know, some, we, we were looking to do a little bit of work recently with the Anfield rap and, and we were looking to sort of tender for it in Liverpool and Manchester uh, and someone went to one of one of our guys went went, oh, we support United, is that alright? As though we were going to go, well, no, we wouldn't want to give him money. Utterly ridiculous, but... That was, and that was someone in Manchester, uh, it wasn't someone in Liverpool. And then there's, there's another story I've got of a friend of mine who, who used to work in Manchester who who uh, was once accosted by someone who, who said, you take your butties, don't you? And he went, no, i buy me lunch when I'm in work. And anyway, what you spend a scouse pound in Manchester, so there's loads and loads of you know. There's, but these are extreme examples of people being. I, I think utterly ridiculous. You know, Liverpool and Manchester are linked, and there's lots and lots of cross pollination. There's lots of people who live who would view themselves as being Mancunians who live in, who, who live or work in, in Liverpool, and there's lots and lots of people who, who are from Liverpool who, who work in Manchester. The issue is that the transport links aren't great.
3: Well, since we're talking about the North, the podcast wouldn't be complete without a bit of misery.
2: I love the way you say that, like, misery is an entirely Northern phenomenon, like, you know, I, I, I'm pretty miserable. I'm I
3: think I think it's not an exclusively Northern phenomenon, but it's a necessary part of Northern identity. I'm saying
2: I'm 70% water and 30% misery, so. <laughs> Yeah, so, so what, what what misery are we talking
3: here? Well, to fulfil our misery quotum, because we're too perky in here... Um, <laughs> <laughs> we went to Twitter and we asked you whether you are a northerner who's moved down south, or indeed if you're a southerner who's moved up north. And we asked you to tell us why you made the move, what it is you miss, and if there's something that would tempt you back. John, would you ever be tempted up north?
2: I mean, knows the, the the answer, but not as a reflection on the north. That's kind of a sort of personal thing. That just like you know, I'm I my family are down here, my wife's family are down here, the industry I work in is down here. But I do kind of feel sad about that. I mean, particularly Manchester, there's a lot, of, I, I would quite happily move to Manchester, a remotely plausible thing, but it just isn't in terms of my career or my family or whatever. So I'm, this is actually a really boring answer. Sorry. I like trams. <laughs> trams are good. I mean, basically I just like trams.
3: I mean, you could just move to Brixton.
2: There are no trams in Brixton. Are
3: there not trams in Brixton? They're in Croydon. Croydon. It's all, I mean, come on.
0: This is, this is, this is, this is terrible.
1: you have an Airbnb your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host
2: well, I'm getting more offended by this than <laughs> let's, you... let's move on before I get angry so let's read out some tweets
3: let's read out some tweets
2: Helpfully, the first reply to Stephanie's tweet asking for things people miss about the North was from Stephanie herself, saying, I, for instance, miss good jokes, to which I replied, yes, but that's just because you work with Stephen, to which Stephanie replied, see.
3: This is the great banter we have in the New Statesman offices. You can, If you follow John and I on Twitter, you can, you know, get all sorts of this great off the, off the <laughs> of content.
2: Sharing the misery. I mean, we did warn you this bit was going to be miserable. But.
3: The interesting thing about this was I, I kind of put this tweet out, and we got lots of like, serious answers about people moving for jobs. We got a lot of people talking about missing air quality and being able to breathe and things like that. But it's clearly something people feel really impassioned about because for the first time, multiple people sent me quite long, heartfelt emails about why they had moved or why they wanted to move back. Some of them asked to do so kind of anonymously, as if they might Northern be outed. Is Northern is anonymous. anonymous i guess people who are employed in london who don't want to go i'm seriously considering it in public mm. but the biggest one is people with children who want to have room for children to grow up and not have to have children breathing london air and things like that
2: yeah i kind of hear that i mean i i sometimes get that worry and i have all the family ties down here and you know own a london flat and i still worry about the possibility of getting somewhere big enough to have a family one day so for someone who doesn't have those things but does have like a lovely sort of northern mill town or whatever that they come from I can totally see why that's part of the equation and this is you know as we've discussed at great length this is why this country is screwed that there's jobs at one half the country and homes in the other and it's really difficult to find somewhere you can get both
3: well this is an interesting thing actually a lot of people younger a lot of people around my age who aren't planning to have kids soon shared a similar sense of frustration that they are essentially tied to london if they want to work in certain fields so for instance a good friend of mine sarah wrote and said i moved south 10 years ago to go to a university after graduating in a recession, no idea what I wanted to do. I went to London to do a master's. I'm still in London seven years later, and she works in the heritage sector. So, And the, heritage
2: is all over. Heritage is not a London-specific phenomenon, right?
3: But I think to get jobs in her specific archive work, you either have to move around constantly, or you can live in London and move institutions, because they are so concentrated in London. Mm. And also her partner is a civil servant, so she is now tied to London. But she says, I think about it mostly when I'm sandwiched between four people on an overcrowded train having a panic attack quietly or every January when the price of my travel card goes up. There are a lot of things I like about London and a lot of opportunities it has afforded me, but it makes me tired. A lot of things feel fragile and a lot of it has to do with the cost of living. If an opportunity came up to move back or elsewhere in the north, I would go tomorrow. I would also like to be able to procure oatcakes freely and walk in the peaks.
2: <laughs> but the point about her partner being a civil servant is an interesting one, not I mean, partly because the government is down here, but also because it becomes a matter of not just getting one good job opportunity in a different bit of the country. Once you're coupled up, you need two, and that's that's an order of magnitude harder to achieve to kind of coordinate that for sort of both halves of the relationship at once. And okay, you can live on one salary for a bit or whatever, but like you can't really ask a partner to give up their career.
3: To kind of move, I mean, yeah, I'm doing a PhD and this is the constant problem for academics is you have to move city all the time and it's a kind of famous curse of trying to have a relationship while in academia is either you drag someone with you or you do long distance for years. But it, it is interesting that both job opportunities and wages in those jobs are in a position where you have to really hunt and plan and save to be able to do a move like that now.
2: Do you know what my proposed solution to all this is?
3: Is it move Parliament to Hull and raise the salaries a lot?
2: You're not far off. Originally, it was Bradford, and I wrote as much in a piece of The Guardian, which was largely because Bradford is basically the middle of the country. It's much prettier than anyone thinks it is, and I think if we put Parliament there, then like they would actually sort of have to invest in, in links across the north. Plus, there was a point where there was a great big hole in the middle of Bradford where you could quite easily put a Parliament, but they've since put a bloody shopping centre there, so... Thanks, Westfield. So so now I'm kind of accepting the, the inevitable that if we're actually seriously going to talk about this, then it's got to be Manchester, right? Of the major British cities, Manchester is kind of the most central in the... I mean, I think Birmingham is more so... consider that the Midlands. But if you look at the whole of Great Britain, Manchester's the one that's kind of in the middle. It's a shorter journey to, on average, to other major British cities. And there's already sort of a lot of grand architecture. There's a lot of political institutions going to be there. And also you could... It would be more plausible to persuade the Westminster bubble people to move to Manchester than to move to a lot of other places. not easy, but it's not completely implausible.
3: So maybe if you replied to our tweet saying you'd like to move back up north, join our campaign to do the reverse, to empty the Arndale Centre and fill it with disgruntled politicians.
2: It works for me. You've been listening to Skylines, the City Metric podcast. It was presented by John Ledge and Stephanie Boland and produced by Royfield Brown. You can contact all three of us on Twitter, where there's a pretty good chance we'll talk back. Our theme music was Waves by CORTR. You also heard We Are One by Vic Zento. All music in the show is licensed under Creative Commons. You can find Skylines every two weeks on Acast, on iTunes, or in the podcast of your choice. You can also find two more shows by Ericsson colleagues, Seriously, and the New Statesman podcast. In the meantime, you can find all the stories about cities, maps, and geography you could ever possibly want on our website, citymetric.com. And since you've listened this far, leave us a nice review on iTunes, eh? Go on. We love you for it. Thanks for listening.